Hello, everyone. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce, and I would like to welcome you to our latest look into the crystal ball on the future of finance. Today, we will be discussing the power of sanctions. Can the use of sanctions in lieu of military action really make a difference? And if so, what does that difference really amount to? We have with us two experts on the soft power of money, EACC member Bill Rhodes, the former chairman, president and CEO of Citibank, and now CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. Bill gained a reputation for international financial diplomacy in the 80s as a result of his leadership managing the debt crisis that involved developing nations and their creditors worldwide. He has since served as a trusted advisor to governments, financial officials and corporations. Bill's conversation partner is Dr. Stuart McIntosh, the executive director of the Group of 30, an international financial think tank comprised of senior figures from central banking, the financial sector, and academia. Their research focuses on climate change, macroeconomic and systemic risks, global governance issues, and the international political economy. Together, Bill and Stewart will explore the challenges the global community is facing in the attempt to rein in Russia and to stop the war in Ukraine via their collective economic and monetary might. Can the deployment of sanctions effectively reverse actions or offending policies? How long will nation states be willing to suffer before they're brought to their knees, if they ever are brought to their knees? With an ever more complex interconnectedness of global financial markets, how are today's political and economic realities on the ground affecting how we deploy economic sanctions for political change? Bill and Stewart will look at a few historical examples and analyze the outcomes. And with that, I hand over to Stuart, who will be taking us through this podcast. Stuart, over to you. Well, it's great to be back here again and uh, talking with Bill Rhodes. It's also a pleasure uh, to be here with the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York. It's a delight to be here and to talk about whether sanctions work. Now, why are we asking this question now? Well, because we thought it was worth visiting this question and looking at the extent to which widespread sanctions that were brought into effect almost immediately after Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th of this year. Whether those sanctions are effective and if so, to what degree? So I think we would start by sort of, if I might, by just making this a general observation of the girth of the sanctions, as it were, and then get into the debate and back and forth with Bill, of course, who has seen these types of dynamics play out over many different crises and different trade tensions and wars. We should observe at the get-go that the sanctions against Russia have been quite wide-ranging, stringent, and exceptional in their breadth. So we have oil purchases being banned by the US and the EU. We have the Russian central bank's reserves being frozen in New York. So the gold in New York is unusable by Russia. There was an attempt to have a price cap on gas being sold by Russia, but that didn't succeed. But Russian financial institutions have had their access to the SWIFT network closed, and we've had hundreds and hundreds of sanctions against individual firms, whether it's oligarchs themselves or defense companies or transport companies, financial institutions, 
IT firms and so on, and energy firms, of course. So they've been very broad from the Americans, matched by European allies. Uh, surprising, I think, if, when the war started, did people think that these, these sanctions would be as broad and as all-encompassing from the allies of America? No. So they have been very broad, but the question is, how effective have they been? Uh, that may be an opening to ask Bill for his initial reaction to the sort of breadth, but also to the extent to which he views these sanctions against Russia as having been effective. Bill. Thank you very much, Stuart. I think the histories of, of sanctions are that they normally don't work. When you think of the sanctions that have been put on Iran since 1979, Venezuela 2008, Cuba, which goes back to the 1980s, and I could go on and on, really have not worked in the sense that they have not caused regime change. What they have done is they've affected the economy uh, in all of these countries to a certain extent, but they have not been able to affect regime change. So I think that's point number one. Point number two, I think the only country where they have worked, and that's because they were prolonged for at least a decade, was South Africa, where you did get regime change. And Mandela himself said, without sanctions, you probably wouldn't have had the fall of the apartheid government. So there is that example of South Africa. But what did we learn from it? Two things. It has to be universal, which was the case with South Africa, and it has to be over a period of time. So as a starter, in the case of Russia, we're in early days vis-a-vis -vis the sanctions. And second, the sanctions were not put in to get regime change as they were in these other countries. So we're looking at two different situations here uh, in the sense of the examples I gave where the sanctions were put on for regime change uh, and only one case actually has worked. So I think that, as I said, we're in early days here. What is needed is to make sure that the United States and its allies, particularly in Western Europe, adhere to the sanctions that they've imposed and not letting up in modifying the sanctions or downgrading them in any sense. I think what Putin is looking for is that when winter comes, the private sector will push the governments to ease up. Uh, and if this occurs, then they will have been all for nothing. Uh, and so I think this is what we have to watch very closely over the next, I would say, six to nine months. Bill, I want to say I agree with you, first of all, with your, your opening point, which is sanctions don't actually result in regime change. We like to think sanctions result in regime change because of course when we're confronting an adversary particularly one where we're close to but hopefully not at war there's no sheeting war going on we would rather that we use economic levers and trade sanctions and so on to coerce our opponent into doing what that which they don't want to do which is to back off of the steps that they've taken in the case of cuba or in the case of iran and so on and so forth however the problem, as you implied, is that when, when it comes to issues of national security or national identity and ideology, trade sanctions don't really work because the national security ideology part of the argument, part of the dispute, trumps the 
pain of the trade and economic sanctions. And perhaps the best example of that is Iran, where we've had those sanctions in place and those sanctions have been incredibly effective in terms of isolating Iran, limiting its oil supply to the world, cutting off its financial support from Western finance, which basically cannot do business with Iran at all. And yet we have not had, as you say, regime change. So I think both of those points are are well taken and the point that you need to push hard on these sanctions for a long time. And even in the short and long term, you don't necessarily get the impact that you're hoping for. Let me just take the Russian case to to drive home that point. If we look at the effect in Russia since those sanctions were implemented at the beginning of this year, inflation went up to 18%, now down to 14%, which is high, but not debilitating. GDP is projected to shrink 6% this year by the IMF. Uh, The ruble dropped in value precipitously initially, but it's rebounded as a result of actions by the central bank basically restricting uh, currency movements. So you've got a negative effect, and certainly there's a huge negative effect for the working poor and the working class and middle class in, in Russia, but you don't have as big an effect as you might think you have, especially since uh, Russia is still getting these big receipts in terms of oil and gas. And as you said, Bill, you have to be united in your in your target and your willingness to do these sanctions. And the reality in the Russian sanctions case is that it wasn't an entirely united front because you had China and India opposing the sanctions. And both China and India today are buying huge amounts of oil at a discount from Russia. So can you talk, Bill, a little bit more about that dynamic where the lack of of unanimity in this case, there are holes in this Russian sanctions regime, it seems to me. Very much so. I think in the case of China, though, the economy is slowing rapidly due to the bust in the property and the real estate sector, uh, along with the COVID lockdowns. So instead of having what they projected is five and a half, six percent growth, they're lucky to get two or three percent growth. So the amount of oil and gas that uh, China will be buying over the coming months will be less than it's buying now. And of course, they're doing it at a 30 percent discount. So I think that if the situation in uh, Ukraine is prolonged, and we go into a worldwide recession, which I think we're going to, China will not be there to bail us out as they did in the Great Recession, where they spent somewhere between 800 billion and a trillion U.S. dollars on infrastructure because they are not able to do so at this point. I think the amount of cash flowing into Russia will be less than we're seeing now. The other point I think which is very important here is that the European nations have to hang together, or as that old expression goes, or they'll hang separately. Because the winter, as I mentioned earlier, will be the great test of these sanctions. And one of the weak links is Germany, because Germany is the largest economy in Europe, and the government there is somewhat indecisive on actually implementing the sanctions as well as not living up to the arms commitments they've made to the Ukraine. As a matter of fact, the Kiel Institute, which is the leading institute of economics in Germany, made a point the other day that since June, 
in Germany, they've seen a sharp slowdown in uh, rearming the Ukraine as promised uh, in some of the commitments Germany's made. And there are doubts whether Germany will stick it out. Now, of course, an action that was taken a few days ago by Chancellor Schultz uh, is more positive because he nationalized the three refineries that were partially owned by Gazprom, the Russian oil monopoly. So I would say that the question of Western Europe will really be answered by what is done in Germany. Now, Hungary is a problem, but the economy of Hungary is so small, it doesn't count that much. So if these sanctions are to be effective, Germany must hold the line and do so on an ongoing basis. Otherwise, these sanctions are not going to work. That is a key point, Bill. And I would just make a small point of difference. I, I do think, however, that Hungary matters, that these other small European states matter. And why is that? Well, because, of course, the unity of Germany and the ability of Germany to act is, is intimately interlinked with the actions of the European Union, of which it is the leading power. And many of these decisions require qualified majority or unanimity in the European context. And therefore, if you have Hungary, and let's say you have an Italian far-right neo-fascist government, which leans towards Putin, and you've just had the shocking upset in Sweden, with a far-right government that is nodding somewhat differently towards Putin. What you don't have anymore, potentially, is unanimity in the European Union on their political stance vis-a-vis Russia. And this goes to your point of the need for unity. So we need German leadership, but we also need a continued high degree of cohesion and unity amongst European states. They didn't get their gas price cap in large part because Hungary refused to do it. But as we go into the winter, as you correctly said, pressures will mount because the costs rise. Even though oil and gas prices are slipping back a bit, as you said, in part because the Chinese economic dragon is slowing at the moment because of the housing crisis they're suffering from. Um, those cuts in costs and prices in Europe, particularly, won't have an effect this winter because the gas purchased to heat houses this winter in Europe have been purchased earlier during the price hike. In other words, you have to get through a period of sustained high prices for gas before you get to the downturn next year. So the months ahead are going to be crucial. Let me turn to another Part of the question, Bill, and get your take on this, which is given that we have to have unanimity or at least strong degree of cohesion amongst Europe and between Europe and the US for, to make these sanctions continue to, to cause pain to Putin. They won't cause regime change, but they may add to his difficulties. Is this not also a period during which the Europeans and the Americans need to make much more rapid shifts away from Reliance on Russian gas, reliance on sources that are well, unreliable, and in other words, move to a diverse group of alternative sources, including renewable sources, including nuclear, including liquefied natural gas and so on. How do you view that? I mean, shouldn't this be also a moment for accelerated transition away from reliance on Russian energy? 
Without a doubt, but I would just go back to a couple of your points. It looks like the Brotherhood is going to win in Italy, and the head of that movement, uh, which people accuse of being semi-fascist, said that they will go along with the sanctions. So we have to see with the Brothers of Italy as a head of the Italian parliament what happens. There's no doubt losing Mario Draghi was a big loss to the cohesion uh, on the Ukraine. But it's not clear where Italy's going to come out. When I downplayed somewhat the situation in Hungary is that what the Europeans have decided to do, uh, van der Leyden, with the European Union and uh, others supporting this decision, is to hold out some funding from Hungary that they desperately need for the economy if they don't go along with these sanctions. So I think... Hungary will eventually fall into line. The question is, can Germany hold the line going forward? As far as the point goes on less reliance on, on uh, Russian oil and gas, this is key. And of course, the U.S. is going all out to supply liquid gas, and they're building terminals in Germany and Holland and elsewhere, the uh, Baltic countries, to take this gas. And so they're also importing from gutter and the Middle East. But it takes time. And of course, we always have the nuclear side. Uh, Germany has decided not to prematurely close the last couple of plants that they have there. And of course, France is mainly reliant on nuclear energy for its power. So I think all of these other alternatives, wind, whatever you want to call, will eventually work their way in. But for the moment, I think the winter time is key because Putin is convinced that the European business community, particularly in Germany, will force the government to back down. And if this does not happen, I think sanctions have a chance of at least influencing what Putin does. Now, the other side of that is whether these countries who've promised arms support to the Ukraine live up to their commitments. And so far, the only ones that have are the United States and the UK. Uh, and so it's very important that that also occur at the same time that sanctions are pursued. So I think Putin is counting on all of the above not to succeed. And he got away with it in Crimea, and nobody did anything about it. So I think that was a bad example that was set. And he's convinced that if he just waits it out, uh, his economy can absorb it over the next year or two. We shall see. Indeed, indeed. And, and it requires not only, as you say, continued resoluteness amongst European leaders and, and the American allies, but also a continued flow of resources to Ukraine, but also fiscal support nationally in Europe and in the UK to their own populations, because, of course, the populations themselves are bearing the burden of those higher energy prices as are the, the commercial operations, the firms and the companies upon whom everybody relies for employment. Uh, and if oil and gas prices remain, particularly gas prices remain very elevated in Europe and in the UK, you will see increased unemployment, you will see continued increased inflation, you may see downward pressure on growth. So it's not a, it's not a particularly positive picture going into the winter. I don't think it's uh, unsolvable, but it will need 
continued strength on all on all parts. Are there points that you think we ought to touch on in terms of the lessons from the use of sanctions and whether or not they work? I think I think we're coming to a, a sort of a general agreement, Bill, you and I, that that sanctions have a function. They don't result in regime change. They do require considerable periods of time to have any effect. And even then, they their effects are perhaps less than you would expect. In this case, it seems as if we won't get a South African result. We might. Uh, I doubt it. How do you view it, Bill? Are you, are you hopeful that we might have a sudden breakthrough if you mix the continued strong sanctions with support for the Ukrainian leadership? Or do you think this really is a process that will run for not just through the winter and into the next year, but for some years hence? Well, I think that we are in a difficult period economically worldwide, and I think we're going into a worldwide recession. If not by the end of this year, I think early next year. Without a doubt, Europe will go into recession and the UK. And I think there's a likely chance it will in the United States. And I already mentioned the situation uh, in China. So I think this is the wild card here, because that'll mean the uh, need for less oil and gas. So I think it's it's sort of a waiting game here, and Putin is counting on the West not really staying in for the count. And so that's what we'll have to see. As I said, we're not looking for regime change here. We're looking for Putin to go back to the table, whether it be the status quo ante, as Henry Kissinger has called for, or something else of a negotiated arrangement, as Macron is calling for it, uh, we shall see. But the war could be prolonged and we could get into a deep recession worldwide. So these are two wild cards that have yet to play out here. Well, thank you, Bill. I I appreciate the chance of, of discussing this with you once again, being hosted by the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York and getting a chance to think through how we should consider sanctions and whether they work. Let's hope for a more positive outcome in the new year, but we need to be realistic and sensible about our scenarios. So it's a pleasure to meet you again, Bill, and to speak to you about these issues that are so important to all of us. I thank you, Stuart. I thank the European American Chamber. And I think it's one of the most important issues that the world is facing here today, if not the most important. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bill and Stuart. This was really interesting. That concludes today's episode about the power of sanctions with our friends Bill Rhodes and Stuart McIntosh. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us for this series. We hope that our audience enjoyed listening to this program hosted by the EACC and look into the crystal ball on the future of finance. Please stay tuned for our next installment. Take care.